0: Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization.
1: Uh, topic should be some general characteristics of Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism. So I'm going to um, talk about a few general themes that characterize Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism, and sort of tend to dovetail into one one quality that that uh, one set of qualities that seeks to define it. Um, so the first thing that defines Jewish mysticism is the idea of emanation—the idea that if God is in fact an ineffable uh, entity that can't be um, imagined uh, or even, you know, described, uh, being—if you want to take the words yud uh, hey vav hey, meaning you know, what what the verb literally means—that nonetheless there is some energy, some flow. Okay, It's generally called atzilut in Hebrew, and that's the first premise of basic Kabbalah. And it's not something necessarily that came from Kabbalah, it was something that's found in all Western forms of mysticism. It was probably coined by a Greek philosopher named Plotinus. He was actually Alexandrian uh, in around the 5th century in an idea called Neoplatonism, and that all existence comes flowing from an ineffable high point called the One. And that's the first element of Kabbalah that sort of defines it. Now, when I say Kabbalah, what uh, am I talking about? And I'm going to make a very brief and, and, and just a few points timeline. First of all, you can remember this, Kabbalah begins when prophecy ends. All right. So if prophecy goes up to about 520 BCE, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, as you know, are the last three prophets listed in the books of the prophets in the Tanakh. Um, in fact, who decided they were the last three prophets? Well... Uh, on around 200 uh, CE in Yavna, in the time of the Talmud, the rabbis of the Mishnah decided what was going to be a, a holy book and what was not going to be a holy book, and what was going to be, who were going to be considered prophets and when that was going to end. At the time of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they didn't know that prophecy was ending. They kept on doing what they were doing, which usually had to do with certain body of visions mystical practices, and a literature they left behind called Merkava mysticism or the Heichalot or something like that. That material going on from the point that prophecy arbitrarily was said to have ended became the first literary tradition that uh, defined uh, uh, what we call Kabbalah. That was the first aspect of it. There was also... Uh, an early tradition of God creating the world with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, and the 10, something called the 10 Sphirot. We don't know what the Sphirot are, really, but uh, they could be the 10 numbers of the base 10 system of, 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 of uh, integers, and it could be a, a mysticism of mathematics in those early writings. But that was the other element that got added to Mythic understandings of God's palace on high, separate from our world below. And the idea that God poured out emanation into the world uh, through those channels. Now, continuing the timeline, Kabbalah sort of, all that material sort of ends. We have no record of it in around the year 500, a very important year, the year of the editing of the Babylonian Talmud, the the, um, uh, year of the finishing of the Midrash in the land of Israel, um, uh, and and the, the beginning of the end of the Byzantine Empire. Kabbalah goes away, and then it springs up again like mushrooms in three different places, in Provence, in France, in Girona, in Spain, and in the Rhineland. Okay? Their ideas get collected and published in a large, imagine it as a kind of fantasy trilogy. Okay, This is how I describe it to college students. Think of the person you were before you discovered the Lord of Rings and the person you are now that you've read the. Think of the person you were before you discovered your obsession with Game of Thrones and your new quality, you know, the person you are now. It, it was a, a strong literary produ- um, uh, uh, production of about three to five volumes called the Zohar that pretty much summed up those earlier Kabbalistic ideas um, in, in mythic form, in the adventures of a group of rabbis wandering around the Galilee. The Zohar's ideas um, circulated and gained greater force with the Spanish expulsion, which for the people at the time was like the Shoah. They'd been in Spain for a thousand years. They didn't think it would ever go wrong. It all ended, and they were exiled into the Byzantine Empire in Poland. And with them, they took this idea of, we're really living in a, in a vast myth. Um, uh, those ideas were concentrated among the Kabbalists in Svat if you're familiar with that, and the Sfat Kabbalists were once again uh, revived in the Hasidic movement. All of these movements positing a few basic premises in their spirituality, that emanation that God emanates into the world and is present, imminent in the world, Um, that there are forces of evil and there are forces of holiness, that there are charismatic leaders who are the agents of the forces of holiness. Um, well, let me, let, me, let me put this another way. <clears throat> In the Mishnah itself, it says, anyone who thinks about these four things, it would be better. Ratui lo, not ratui, ratui lo. Shalom bala olam. I'm seeing who's nodding at a little Hebrew joke there. Um, uh, it would have been better if he'd never come into the world. What's above, what's below, what came before, and what came after. Kabbalah has always systematically violated this direction. It is totally concerned with what's above, what's below, what came before, and what came after. What's above? It's not a. Not a trick question. What's above? Heaven. Heaven, The pantheon. The structure of heaven. Very early concern of Kabbalah. Um, What's below? Gehenna? Gehenna? What would you say? Hey, you have a more homely word for it? Hell. Hell. But really, when we talk about hell, we're really assuming a couple things that our Judaism has been becomingly agnostic about. Is there a dichotomy between the body and the soul? What is the fate of the soul in the afterlife? When we say below, we're really positing the idea of a soul, something that we do not have a curriculum for in the fifth grade uh, uh, Hebrew school program. (laughs) The soul. The soul. Okay. what comes before what's that what's before yeah but what's what we're talking about it's not it's less, less tricky what history from when history from creation. creation so theories of creation and what will come after the Messiah the end of days the end Of history so Kabbalah always has a strong strain of messianism in it right up to the upsurge in messianism that we see today in Chabad and religious Zionism. Okay so those four things are the defining elements and the strongest of uh, one of the premises then I'm saying is um, uh, emanation. Now what's the problem with emanation? From the point of view of the Jewish religion, if God emanates godliness into this world, what's the problem with that? From the point of view of, Jew- of yes? How come, we got evil? How come we have evil? Point number one is the forces of evil just sort of God's Luca Bracci, you know? Or if the world, if the world, um, uh, if, if, the for- if godliness emanates into the world, are there just little spots, like Martin Buber said, where, you know, like a table, and the godliness is just, you know, bouncing off, and inside of that, you know, the demonic can dwell. So, so, what is the source of evil? Is um, uh, the, the first issue, okay? Also, how do I, as the mystic, get into that flow? Okay, how do I uh, get into that flow? Also, I'm looking at a theological question. If God is ineffable, and I say something in this world is godly, haven't I limited God by saying that there's God in that thing? And if I limit God, isn't that here? Here's a limit, you know. Here's, you know. Isn't that really? Making the limit is really the first bang of the hammer in making an idol because I've limited God in some way. So that's the problem. That's the first problem with the idea of emanation. So, yeah? Go ahead. Um, Yes, so, um, yes. So
2: uh, would uh, a second quality, though, be, uh, because i heard it in there, a concretization?
1: Well, it's no... It took... It took another turn, and I'll tell you what the turn it took is. But first, I want to set the stage. I don't know if you've ever read the um, works of Dara Horn, the novelist. Uh, but Dara Horn, she went on the Bronfman program which, uh, uh, when she was younger, when she was a high school student, and uh, you know, really has turned out very well. And she cares about important things, uh, unlike most writers today. She cares about Solomon Schechter and. Der Nista, the great Jewish. She, I mean, I haven't read her new book, but she's like a grab bag of everybody I consider important. She writes a novel about. OK? Um, why did I start talking about Dara Horn? Oh, we want to talk about Solomon Schechter. Solomon Schechter, in Cairo, they never threw out the Jewish writings, perhaps you know and they put them all in a room, and that room was called the uh, Cairo-Genezer, and it was eventually a hazard, so they cleaned it out. To make a long story short, they sent Solomon Schechter out there, and he found some old Merkava texts from this period, all right? The earliest, earliest period uh, they dated to. And he found that one of the things they did was they... um, uh, uh, they described God's qualities, God's midot. How does God emanate into the world? Through qualities that we experience. So they found a, he found a hymn called God, Lord of all the created world, blessing and blessed in the mouth of every soul, his greatness uh, uh, and his goodness. Fill the world. Knowledge and understanding surround his glory. And Solomon Schechter was impressed, not because it was such a great poem, but because it was, in fact, something he knew from the liturgy. I'm talking about page 151. El Adon al-Kol ha-Ma'asim is what I just described. um, uh, recited to you. El Adon al-Kol the homely hymn that we've been singing on Shabbat all our lives, has its origins in the origins of Jewish mysticism, as well as another hymn that uh, uh, conservative Jews and Ashkenazim sing on Simchas Torah night, and Svardim and Chasidim and Eidot and sing it every Shabbat, Haderat V'Amunah, lemi lemi ha muna suvemen le la The grandeur and the belief. To whom? To the One who lives forever. Also a list of midot. El-adon is a list of godly qualities. All these things listed here are stages in God's emanation into the world, okay? Stages in the mythos of God's emanation into the world. So, midot, qualities, became ways of seeing God. Um, People think that there's something cosmic about the love that they feel for their children or their loved ones, but in fact, this this kind of love... This kind of feeling was, was a godly quality in its refracted, emanated form. So the idea of midot te'arim, aspects, qualities, became one of the things that Kabbalah was, with which Kabbalah was um, preoccupied. This lent itself to a way of perceiving God through a series of symbols. And by the time Kabbalah had come to the period of the Zohar, they began to see various realities as a series of symbols. Let me give you an example of the most widespread one. Um, The most widespread one is, uh, of course, the image of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah begins as, um, well, here's the tabernacle of the desert. Okay, sort of a fence like an outdoor swimming pool. And in the middle is the Holy of Holies, or in this case, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant is the Shekhinah. Later in the temple is a thing called the Kodesh the Holy of Holies. And God lives there. God comes down. May lightning not strike me. Like the dedication of a Hindu temple in which an aura infuses the idols in the temple. God came down for Moses, for King Solomon, at other times, and suffuses the Holy of Holies. When the temple is destroyed, the Shekhinah, the suffusing, the presence, goes into exile with the Jews and becomes a transient presence, present when ten people pray together, when three people eat together, when two people study together, when one person is wrapped in their talis and tefillin, the Shekhinah, a spectral presence, rested, rests on them. Now the word Shekhinah in Hebrew ends with ah, what does that mean? It's feminine. And in fact, as people began to speak about the Shekhinah, And it's an indication of the power of language and the importance of Hebrew. As people began to speak about the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah took on feminine terms. When you say the Shekhinah mourns, the Shekhinah weeps, the Shekhinah wanders, the Shekhinah suffers, she becomes in the public mind a suffering woman. All the images and the lamentations of Jeremiah in which the city of Jerusalem is com- compared to all kinds of feminine archetypes. She's um, the, the widow. She's the, the, the bride who's who's uh, lost her husband. She's the mother who's lost her children. She's the menstruous woman. All kinds of elements. In the same way, the Shekhinah took on those, those terms right and kabbalists in the time of the zohar saw themselves as the knights of the shekhinah as the courtiers of the shekhinah of the shekhinah like a princess in a castle that they're going out to save the courtly love tradition right so <clears throat> from emanation The next thing that Kabbalists, the the, the next aspect of Kabbalistic um, spirituality was symbols. All right, so that the Kabbalist, you know, I apologize for any cisgendered, you know, gendering that I'm going to do in my sketch. I'm not a young man, okay? the Kabbalist there's the, um, uh, has his or her religious symbols, the talus and tefillin, that they adorn themselves with. All right, proboscis, beard. Um, they have the phenomenal world around them, okay, that, from which they derive um, meaning. In in the uh, uh, the first page of the Zohar says, like a rose among thorns is my is my beloved among the lily among the the, the daughters. And it says, yes, like a rose among thorns. That's why, when you hold the Kiddush cup on Friday night, this is on page one of the Zohar of two thousand pages. When you hold the Kiddush cup on Friday night, hold it from below, like your hand is the thorns. And the cup is like the rose, the pool, okay, feminine symbol. And that's how you're bringing, you're holding the Shechinah as you say Kiddush. So the the Zohar discusses a symbol, and then he immediately um, uh, tells us a halacha, tells us a ritual to do with it. Um, What did I have here? Oh, the phenomenal world. Let's do some pomegranates. Okay? Um, uh, the phenomenal world, the sacred text in front of him or her. OK? And the mitzvah actions that they do, okay? What's the most important mitzvah, of course? Um, um So you know, because is is filled with mitzvahs. Shritah is filled, you know, that, that's a mitzvah, all right? So between the phenomenal world, the sacred text, the religious symbols with which one bedecks oneself, and the mitzvah actions that you want to take on, um, that's the spirituality that the Kabbalist is living in, all right? And each of these things uh, have a transcendent uh, dimension to them, and uh, it's uh, going to uh, influence your behavior. Let me give you an interesting example that may be from our whole experience and is very timely. Parts of the Zohar say, there's an astral body, a body of God. As the body of God is, so the human body is. As our other bodies, it's isomorphic. You know, if you don't like this, then okay, but you can't like chakras either. Okay, if you don't want this, you've got to give up the chakras, okay, because it's the same thing. Um, And inside the astral body are sources of the demonic. What are the sources of the demonic? Organs that purify the body are actually demonic the spleen, the liver, the bile, okay, sometimes the kidneys. Lesions on the lungs, sirchot. So Chasidim in Europe began to be very picky about eating animals that had lesions on the lungs. I'm going to be very careful. What do you call an animal? Uh, What is the condition of a lung that is clean and smooth and free of lesions? How do you say that in Yiddish? It's glot. It's smooth. So when Hasidim arrived here in 1944, they said, we're not eating Hebrew national salami. Okay? We require meat that's glut. The lungs are smooth. Why? The Zohar says that those lesions are unwholesome, demonic. Anybody here ever koshered liver? Well, how do you kosher liver? But more than... Well, you have to broil it. It can only be broiled. It can't be salted. And it makes the broiler trafe. Why? It's impurity. It's got a double measure of blood. One way to channel the emanation and, um, and posit yourself in that flow and avoid the demonic became halacha. And Kabbalists became great halachists. The Ari wrote one of the volumes of the Shita Mekubetzis. Okay, um, he uh, uh, um, those Kabbalists ran very close to the Halachists, and they went hand in hand for a while. Okay, so Halacha became a way of channeling the emanation and negotiating the path between um, good and evil. Okay, if that's the case um uh, also it led to the halakha being fetishized and today also you will find people in ultra orthodoxy who do things that have no basis in rational halakha but they have made a fetish of it and it's most twisted when it's come recently to areas of gender but that's the impulse that comes from, this, from, you know, the Kabbalistic impulse. Yes? I,
2: mean, I just want to ask so it's out of my head. How did they come to think that the organs that purified were demonic? What did that come
1: from? Um, that's just their tradition. It probably comes from uh, assumptions uh, in pre-16th uh, pre uh, pre century medicine of what things are. I mean, uh, uh, we all... Um, uh you may you may find the same you know similar ideas uh in the pantheon or, uh, of a, an acupuncturist or an herbalist or somebody who's uh you know you don 't know if it 's true or false but it works i mean that 's what we find a lot in alternative healing uh and a lot of those ideas uh have their origins in the same in the same period the world of humors uh China, what what you find in Chinese medicine and so on and so forth you know uh so They were operating in that pre-scientific context, and that was one of their understandings, you know? Okay, so that world, the world in which the mitzvahs are part of the suffusing of the emanation, was the next quality. I want to go back a little bit into the idea of emanation. Um, Kabbalists began to toy with the idea that... um, the emanations of God had emanated out like this uh, in a series of spheres um, I compare it sometimes to a, 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 a gla- blown glass which is actually the metaphor the Kabbalah uses a lot as if the breath of God blows into the matter withdraws from the matter but the, the vessel is still left like a piece of blown glass which is the the image here. Eventually, an idea begins to circulate that, in fact, there had been earlier creations in which things had uh, uh, been uh, uh, linear, the emanations, and that it worked out better in a later creation in which the elements of the spheroid were balanced. And therefore, all, all theories of personal balance that you might encounter in other uh, systems. You might find it in yoga or tantra, meditation, traditions, and that kind of thing. Um, that idea of balance becomes the, the, the next understanding. There also becomes an idea that begins to assert itself in the Zohar and comes more to the fore in the Galilean Renaissance in the 16th century, which is very important because it was after the Spanish expulsion. It was post-Shoah. It was after a catastrophe. There then is the notion that maybe there is an earlier emanation and catastrophe occurred, and now we live in a second emanation. Eventually, it comes to the idea of um, uh, uh, God withdrawing to the side in order to make room for uh, those emanations. And to the side of the emanated world is a void. And later, Ashkenazi capitalists of all stripes become very interested in the void. And long before Sartre and the Existentialists and Derrida and uh, um, contemporary with Buddhist thinkers, these people were seeing themselves more as operating in a void, which also led to some defeatism, uh, particularly during the Shoah. Uh, It's a voided world anyway. What can we do? Um, So this understanding. Uh, also leads to the idea that the vessels of emanation were broken, that they buckled from within. Okay, Everybody sees it as a sort of Kristallnacht kind of breaking of glass. That's what Anselm Kiefer did in his large work on the breaking of the vessels. But it's really more like a car antenna jamming, an old-fashioned car antenna for your AM radio. I'm sorry if you're an instructor at the American Jewish University, um, you, uh, you know, and, and you try to force it in and out, and then it jams more. That's what the breaking of the vessels is. But we really live in this sort of jammed-up world now, um, a broken world. One Kabbalist compared the world to <clears throat> a beautiful palace um, that a king has withdrawn to, and it has a series of terraces below. And at the bottom, it's lying in ruins because he's neglecting it, because he's gone away. The image clearly being God going away, neglecting the world. And in the world, there, are the, there's these blockages and, and, and collapsed areas and that kind of thing. So later on, you have the emanation has come to some kind of a bad end.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much,
1: and now back to the learning. We have um, emanations, symbols, halakha, and um, uh, the symbolic life, basically. What's the last quality that characterizes this strain of Jewish mysticism? It is, as I said, a kind of romanticism about your movement's place in history. And this led to real historical development. That is to say, um, the Zohar. The earliest, not, well, I shouldn't say the czar is the earliest, but sort of the founding charter telling the, the adventures of a group of mystics wandering around the Galilee in the second temple period or, uh, in the year 200, even though it seems very medieval. Um, obviously written later. How much later? Open to discussion. The Zoar leads to a movement back to the Galilee. In the time of uh, the 16th century of people wanting to experience the Zohar people for whom the Galilee was like a theme park of things that had happened in the Zohar and after the Spanish expulsion they went back to the Galilee thinking they could sort of like squat down on the same ruins and draw up the energy from that spot it didn't hurt that those people believed that the souls of the departed really did dwell in the sacred graves where they had been buried and that those sacred graves were portals that you could take on the soul of a dead saint and rise up with that saint's consciousness to the celestial garden of Eden. If that saint had the, the highest part of their soul had dissolved back into God, you could actually dissolve yourself into God, these Kabbalists believe, in this sacred place. So in the time of of Tzfat, who here has been to Tzfat? Yeah, in the time of Tzfat, they made, they replicated that Eros, they replicated that experience, and Hasidism came along, The issues you might be having with Hasidism are the classic issues of Hasidism. Hasidism began as a light portable movement for a new merchant class that was mobile in Poland and didn't want to submit to the authority of the yeshivas and their third world practice of taking the most promising uh, young scholars and uh, 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 keeping them raising them like veal for 20 years and then marrying them off to the daughters of the wealthy Uh, they didn't want to buy into that so they had an egalitarian spirituality movement the same thing that if you come from a synagogue you might be experiencing if you're bedeviled by some group that's operating off the grid Aisha Torah Chabad the Kabbalah Center Somebody operating light and fast out of a storefront, okay, taking away your members. That's what happened with Hasidism. It was a romantic, mobile movement for a new generation of increasingly mobile merchant class, okay, Um, uh, taking uh, the ideas of the Zohar and the Sfat Renaissance and Marketing them, marketing them like the Kabbalah Center, okay, which began as a marketing enterprise and has no guilt feelings about selling things. It began as a nonprofit, okay, uh, to, mar- to merchandise the founder's books. Zohar, Sfat, Hasidism, and then finally, in the footsteps of Hasidism, Zionism. If you were ever bundled off of a tour bus in the rain or the mud to climb a hill to look out at a mountain somewhere in Israel, and they called it a tiul, right? you're doing that based on something that the Zionists coined that they were going to reclaim the land of Israel through walking on it an idea that they lifted, along with the word kibbutz, from Hasidim, who made a virtue of traveling to their Rebis and having pilgrimages (laughs) hither and yon, based on something that they did in the time of the Tzfat Renaissance, when certain great rabbis of Tzfat walked through the Galilee, finding the graves of the sages of the Zohar, Reliving events described in the Zohar, which may have been a work of imagination. That's the Kabbalistic line. And it's operating separately, concurrently, from the Jewish community. And that's the normal place for it. That's the normal place for it. Existing slightly uneasily with the Jewish establishment so the issues you may have with a given Hasidic sect are they too withdrawn are they not withdrawn enough is their theology dubious because of its messianism are their gender practices over the top these questions were the same questions that people had with Hasidism at its inception, and were also questions which haunted the whole relationship of Kabbalah to the Jewish community as a whole. What will the future bring? What will the future bring? Um, We have to understand that we can't be attached to the past. We've had 120 years of what I would call the Ellis Island generation, the generation of Jews who came ashore at Ellis Island at the turn of the 20th century, worked in menial professions, began to fan out to middle America as pushcart peddlers and then um, uh, merchants out in the hinterlands whose children fought in World War II and took a hard look at the American suburbs and liked what they saw, who made their expression, conservative Judaism, uh, a Judaism with attention to tradition, but you can drive on Shabbos, um, who made that the salient movement of the 20th century, and then began to recede before new, um, uh, new uh, uh uh groups coming in okay post-war immigrants nitsulei shoah holocaust uh survivors and veterans um uh hasidim ultra-orthodox and then moroccans in my quebec syrians in the northeast uh, America, united states persians post-1979 In greater LA, um, Russians of all stripes, okay, and the group that doesn't even want to be counted, expatriate Israelis, okay. New populations are supplanting the Ellis Island generation uh, uh, with new needs. We have majority Sfaradi and Eidota Mizrach population in Israel. Who practice Mesorati traditional Judaism, a continuum of orthopraxis that is sort of familiar to some of us, okay? Um, uh, we have new populations. The Hasidism that we I was idolized as spirituality, okay? From Isaac Beshev Singer to Fiddler on the Roof to uh, 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 the post-war period, has turned into something else. Europe was closed for the 20th century. It was seen through a gauze of nostalgia. Communism had engulfed the eastern states, Russia and uh, up to Poland. The Shoah killed a million and a half Hasidim alone. And Hasidism was viewed as a very beautiful ideal. Today, we deal with reality. And it's increasingly seen as a pocket of uh, what we would call, you know, fundamentalism, essentially. Uh, The influence of Hasidism as a spiritual ideal will fade. The influence of Kabbalah as a set of, of, uh, you know, uh, motivating factors will recede. The younger generation is highly rationalistic, okay? The young people, you say, what about the mother archetype? What about the Shekhinah? They say, well, the best we can say for that is that it's really second-wave feminism, okay? But we're third-wave feminists now. Uh, We're not gender-specific, cisgendered male, okay? (laughs) That's what you're going to get. Things are changing. What do I posit? I posit an interest in Jewish Islamic mysticism. I see coming a great interest in Sufism, uh, the mysticism practiced by the sons and grandsons of Maimonides, based in Maimonides' rationalism, incorporating a rapprochement with Islam in the end, and also providing an expression of the gut need that some Jews have to meditate. What is the role of meditation? Is it wholly secular? Is it spiritual? Can it be Jewishly spiritual? There are people who have a visceral need to meditate as much as somebody has a visceral need to work out or to do yoga. They have it viscerally in their guts. Do they want it to be as secular as as, uh, as doing Pilates? No. They want to make the connection. And the Judeo-Islamic connection encompasses that. That is the path of the contemplation of emptiness. So I think that that will be the wave of the future, that as this comes, certain scholars are working on it, certain people are reaching out to it, on a personal level and i speak for the middle-aged people here i don't see too many but i'll count myself as that there's a certain stage of your life you may know the young people i'll tell you there is such a thing where you're a dragon slayer where you're living the myth where you're a warrior okay where you're Locked in a battle against evil. To lose. Well, there is. There is a point where you simply want to understand your role in the present meaning of things and not want to take, take part in such a big cosplay kind of myth. Uh, it's a sort of one of the things I'm afraid to write. I sort of compare certain the interest in Kabbalah from all the stages that I talked about, and including a number of Israeli scholars, is sort of like people who dress up as Batman and go to Comic-Con in San Diego and you know, hear lectures about Batman or they dress up as Darth Vader or something like that. Cosplay, it's called. I sometimes think that some people are dressing up to go take part in, in you know, in in the fantasy trilogy of Judaism. When you get to a certain age, you simply want to know, what's your role in existence without fighting with anybody? What's your role in existence without being dressed up? Where you are when you take the fancy tzitzis off, you know? Uh, And I say that as somebody whose very clothing is on display now in the Magnus Museum in San Francisco as a, you know, uh, an exhibit from the House of Love and Prayer in San Francisco in the 1960s. They have my talus cotton in there. That's, you know, on a mannequin. Um, so, but there's a point where you simply want to get into the simple nature of things. And I think that that kind of contemplative path, something like that will be the future, I think. Okay. Um, so that, those are some those are some characteristic elements of um, Kabbalistic spirituality. Um, I think it's time for me to take questions. Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. As you know, the Talmud says, the bashful don't learn. So please, all questions are open. Um, even uh, something that may feel basic, we have a Kabbalah expert here. We have until 830 to take some questions. Uh,
1: if it's basic, just get out of the way now. You'll find out. Yes?
0: Thank you so much.
2: You mentioned that when the era of prophecy closed, you, you used the word arbitrary. I was just wondering, what is the intra-Judaic reason why the era of prophecy had to come to an end?
1: Um, the rabbis limited things, and they limited a whole body of material that they felt was too esoteric, that actually did find its way into being a foundational documents of Christianity, like the Book of Enoch, okay? Um, uh, answer this question a little longer, all right? You have in the Book of Daniel, um, in the Book of Daniel, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days sitting on a throne, uh, and he has a beard, and next to him is something like a man. That's all Daniel says. Okay a book called hanokh enoch sees uh God sitting on a throne and next to him is the messiah sitting and waiting to come and that's our first time we know about a pre-existent messiah a later book revelations which is in the new testament sees God sitting on a throne and a uh, a lamb with its throat cut next to him and that's of course the lamb of god in Revelations, but it's the same tradition of a throne room scene. Okay, Later in the um, uh, 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 Book of the Palaces, um, Rabbi Yishmael is guided by Hanuk, who's become an angel named Metatron, not the transformer. Um, uh, uh, Rabbi Yishmael is guided through the palaces like um, Hanuk. So uh, this is a very interesting thing, because it's really usually when we teach Judaism, we say there's the Bible, and then there's the rabbis, and there's a chasm between them. But this tradition leads directly from the Bible to rabbis, which is sort of very interesting kind of thing. But the rabbis of the time said no. These three traditions, certainly the book of Revelations, are not official canon, and only Daniel is. So it's a tendency to desire to limit limit mythic materials. I mean, this is a very gut Jewish impulse. Chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, the story of the sons of God and the daughters of men obviously seems to have had the guts taken out of the story. It's obviously some sort of parable about immortality, like a mythic parable about immortality. But um, we only have four or five lines there. Um, Somebody came and edited it. Why? They didn't like it. Why? They were Jewish. (laughs) It might have been God on Mount Sinai. It might have been somebody else. But there's a strong Jewish tendency to limit um, myths, and supernatural things, and that kind of thing. May I editorialize? Yes, I think I will. (laughs) You know, I'm going to say it the way some of my teachers in graduate school and in the Christian seminaries used to say. The young atheists, the atheists, they hate the atheists. They take the Bible to task for having a handful of old legends in it. But the 600 chapters about the problem, what happens when you make a moral error, that they throw out because they don't like a talking donkey or something like that. You know, The notion of there being a problem with making a moral error that's hard to, to not make, that they'll, they'll, they have no sympathy for that. But that's what the Tanakh is really about. The editors of the Tanakh, they didn't want you to have a lot of talking donkeys and people being swallowed up by the earth and, and, and that kind of thing. They, they, they were more interested in, in you know, worrying about moral errors. I'm just saying. Do we have another? Uh, it's, a, it's a tendency to limitation. Uh, yes, Shmuley?
0: We have Jewish thought of regress, Jewish thought of the roads, so we have notions of progress, like messianism, right. and also notions of chaos. So yeah, how, how different Kabbalistic ideas intersect with various. You know,
1: of- when you're living in the myth, uh, uh, there's no time. The flood would not have been written about if it wasn't still going on. The flood is happening, and we're drowning, and we don't even know that we're drowning. That's one of the pivotal mef- messages of about a fifth of the Zoar, okay, that the flood is still going on. Some people are the dove, some people are the raven, some things are going to, some things are like Noah's Ark, but don't think this just happened in the past, it's still going on. And all the great images are still, Moses is still present, he never went away, okay, um, other people are going to revisit you from time to time. It, the Torah wouldn't have been written about certain things if they weren't absolutely ongoing, and that's the meaning of all the myths. So there's hardly, I mean, there's hardly time, you know, except other people are, of course, waiting for the end of days, waiting for the Messiah, living life in abeyance, you know, is also a later part of it. So the past- um Well, it's really in the realm of messianism. It's really in the realm of what messianism is, and then what's the reason for 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 living and then it becomes as is, as is every is our morality a giant act of brinksmanship with you know fa- with with fate or are we going to think like people who who want to survive? you know that's the constant uh uh thing uh, and it's written into Zionism and and all the questions that we uh uh, that we face presently, all the verities and all the uh, all the institutions that are disappointing us, whatever they may be, fill in the blank. Yes, ma'am. You haven't mentioned numerology, the role of numerology in the yeah no. That's an interesting point, and I've actually written on the subject. Okay. Um, so there's two two elements. It's not so much numerology, but language and um, symbols and numbers but mainly letter mysticism. If the world was created with the power of the, you know, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, <clears throat> there's obviously going to be sacred names, and there are sacred name traditions, and there are name traditions that, you know, the world is is created with and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I wrote a whole book about this. It was the last serious book that, well, not the last serious book that I wrote, but it was, a, a, you know. I wrote about Sephardic, um. Uh, Sephardic and Edota Mizrach, uh uh that's Middle Eastern, um, uh, Kabbalists in the 18th century who really took the traditions that reduced all of the Kabbalistic myth to a kind of, I'm really going to date people here, MS-DOS language. You know what I'm talking about? There's people who say, oh, I turn on my computer. I use the program. Oh, I do this. I do a keystroke. And then there are people who say, no, it's all keystrokes. <laughs> you know, it's not real if I'm like haven't gone inside the PC and doing it, you know, with keystrokes. And they had reduced the whole mythos to a series of sacred names, which ended up being a kind of, of DOS language. It was without, it was without imagery. And the deepest Kabbalists in Jerusalem today, that became what they're into. That's their kind of Kabbalah. They define the whole Kabbalistic myth of emanation and withdrawal and all the stuff we know about, Simsum and Shvira, the breaking of the vessels. They lay it down to a series of holy names in sequence. And it's sort of obscurantist. It's not really... the. I'm saying, I'm going to unpack it. They're worshipping the obscurity of it. They like it because it is obscure. The fact that they've bought into something that has no rational argument, but they've just bought into it the deepest level. It's like your friend who could only listen... I'm dating people here, but it's better. We're intellectuals. You know, Your friend who could only listen to, like, Ornette Coleman or... Albert Ayler or some kind of impenetrable free jazz that had nothing and and you say you say I, I'm really not I don't get it and they say yeah you want to listen to that Miles Davis and John Coltrane yeah you know it's this kind of the 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 person who you know the kid in college who only wants to listen to the most you know um, vulgar gangster rap or Norwegian death metal you know what I mean it's like it's like the search for The most obscure thing. And that's what Kabbalah sort of degenerated into. Uh, So I I view the names as a degenerate element, really. And that's something that uh, the Kabbalists heard about it, and they figured out what I was saying, and they don't like me very much for it. And that's what I... No, I'm not kidding. Um, Can I tell you an odd story? So there was a fellow who... um, A great scholar wrote about weeping as a Kabbalistic practice. So I was with the those obscurantist Kabbalists in Jerusalem, and there was one guy during the repetition of the Amidah, he would go onto the balcony and cry. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's like he's, um, he's on the balcony crying, just like this Kabbalistic writing, There's just like this scholarly writing described. And then I noticed that everybody was really mean to him, and they treated him like a freak. And I realized this was a guy who had probably read about crying in a scholarly work, was trying to break into these Kabbalists, and everybody treated him like a complete loser, because he, you know, just, it wasn't organic. And I published the book, and then I found out that he was actually an English speaker, and he read my book, and he wanted to be like the first obscurantist Kabbalistic blogger, and he published like a screed. And somebody called me up and said, "Oh, he's attacked you online. Do you want to have a dialogue with him?" And I say, "No. I'd said something insulting about him. He has a right to be mad at me. I'm not going to engage." But, but my point being that that this ob- to 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 like something because it's obscure, which is an intellectual impulse, uh, to our to our detriment. If you've ever read Jacques Derrida's White Mythology, yes. He touched on the- yeah. specifically with the sons and grandsons of Maimonides Yeah. about how much those two have influenced each other well it comes from my, when Maimonides says God is a oneness that is not like any other oneness in the world it's a oneness of which there can be no two or three it's a oneness that can't be divided in half but it's a oneness that repels every aspect that tries to make it not one That's a Sufi idea. He picked it up from Sadia Gaon, who picked it up, from the Sufis, who used it as a meditation technique. His sons, his son, Rabbi Avram Arambam really admired the Sufis. And he was a kind of a wannabe. He would constantly write, well, you know, if you really wanted to do this seriously, we'd be like the Sufis across the street who really take this seriously. You know, too bad we can't be like them. And then by the next one, Rabbi Yovadia ben Arambam, um, he's the grandson, he just wrote a book called The Treaties of the Pool, and he wrote it in Arabic, and it's all Sufi mysticism, and the people, the Sufis in America, have kept it in print, in English. And it's, it's just based on the Bible. It's just making a mysticism out of the Bible. It is a pure biblical form of meditative mysticism the treaties of the pool and then it fizzled out i mean imagine the 13th century Uh, it's 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 1294 and you live in the middle east and i say here's the spiritual path you can be a sufi and you can meditate on god's oneness and you're going to die in poverty and squalor or you're gonna be very interested in the mitzvot, and your way of dealing with God is gonna be through doing the mitzvot, and you're gonna die in poverty and squalor. <laughs> However, you cut it in 1294, you were gonna die in poverty and squalor. So it wasn't like, you know, Sufism, at least this mitzvot based stuff was interesting. Then, in 1391, it's easy to remember began the persecutions that would end in the Spanish expulsion in 1492, 101 years later. And the rabbis of, the, of Spain found something very interesting. The Jews who were believed that the mitzvahs controlled the forces of good and evil were dying, Al-Kiddush Hashem, martyring themselves for God, much more than the people who believe that the mitzvahs were just as if, or signaling to something. I'll give you an example. Uh, The word went out, be careful. How How do you tell your Jewish friend's trying to fool you? Hasn't really converted to Christianity. If he washes his hands a lot. So a Maimonidian would say, Well, you know, there were rules from the time of the temple. Wash your hands before eating bread. But that was because you would pollute your bread in the time of the temple. And we wash as a commemoration of that. And then another person would say, no, we wash because there's literally a demonic spirit that we're going to contaminate our food and contaminate ourselves if we don't get that demonic spirit off with the proper hand washing. The person who said the hand washing is commemorative of an earlier time, they weren't going to start, stop, start, you know, keep on washing their hands when they were being inspected by the officers of the Inquisition. But the person uh, who believed in Kabbalah, who believed there was an empirical demonic spirit he had to get rid of, he'd say no. I'd rather die pure. I'd rather die pure and go on to an afterlife, than, uh, you know, than, uh, uh, yeah, than than uh, pollute myself. Okay. So the rabbis discovered that keeping the mitzvahs according to Kabbalah made stronger um, adherents of Judaism. Even people who were willing to martyr themselves more, which is what they wanted. So philosophy and its attendant interest in Islamic thought fell out of favor, fell out of favor. Another question? Yes. Well, the major hallucinogen is vodka, and I'm not kidding. Um, Because Chabad makes use of liquor in the same way that the Paiute Indians might make use of uh, peyote or something like that. They use liquor as the sacrament. If you have a college student, they use it to um, uh, draw your child in, okay? And and that's the issue. Yafa Eliach tried, years ago, tried to prove that the Baal Shem Tov was using cannabis or something like that. Um, Unclear, Uh, bear in mind that the town the Baal Shem Tov came from, Medzbaz, he was born there in 1700, it was Ottoman until 1720. It was part of the Turkish Empire. One of the great Kabbalah scholars is going to say the Baal Shem Tov went down and he went to Turkey and he encountered Sufis and he went to the, the bath with them and, you know, he probably smoked hashish with them. You know, they're not, it, 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 there was more cultural uh, contact. <clears throat> what the interesting, the drug, another drug that characterizes Kabbalah, particularly the Sfat Renaissance, is coffee. You get the Sfat Renaissance and the Ottoman Empire you know it's only a day's walk from Damascus Tzfat it's only two days two or three days from Istanbul walking to the coast and taking a, a, a boat from Akko and all of a sudden it gets to Sfat, and everybody's staying up all night let's stay up all night on Shavuot night let's stay up all night on Hashanah Rabbah night so it's really um, the circulation, this is a whole thing, the cir- of beverages and their relationship um, um, to culture, okay? Because if you take something from like the Middle Ages, the grubbiest, most squalid, horrific part of the European Middle Ages, there are sections in the Code of Jewish Law which say, do you have to make a bracha on a spicy nut if you're only the, eating the spicy nut so that you'll be thirsty, so that you can drink more beer. It sounds like it's a collegiate binge drinker. Do you need to make a bracha on that thing if it's just that it basically to stimulate you to drink more? And the martini, our olives and onions and our martinis are the lineal descendants of these. When there was nothing else to drink but alcohol, you had to stimulate yourself to drink alcohol in order to drink enough. And of course, it was the Dark Ages. You didn't get anything done after that. But, so the relationship to stimulation and stimulants is a complex, a complex thing. So the you second know. part is the, the story. I don't know whether it's uh,
2: halakha or custom or tradition, but that you shouldn't be single under the age of 40 to study Kabbalah because it can make you a little sugar.
1: Yes. So, probably comes from the Shabbatian movement. Shabtai Tzvi's pro- prophet was a fellow who basically told him he was not manic depressive, but rather the Messiah, and convinced him that the, guy, the kid, whose name was Nathan of Gaza, was 14 and had been fasting for three years and only studying the Zohar. Stories like that got around, and there be- began to be strictures on Kabbalah, um, Uh, At the same time, later, a generation later, Hasidism would start to dispense it. Like, you know, and the question became, am I going to tell you some Kabbalah? Am I going to dispense alcohol to a minor? Am I going to tell Kabbalistic uh, thought to a minor? Do you know what I mean? When I was a young man, they said, well, it's things you could never know. Why could I never know? Because you're not married, okay? Why is that, you know, I don't know because you don't understand what an orgasm is. You don't understand about how women become excited. You know, you don't understand these things, which are really part and parcel of the Zoar, and, and that's beyond you, so you wouldn't get it. I said, well, you know, actually, uh, no, forget it. You're right, I wouldn't get it. You know, that was the, that was the premise. So, so a lot of the eroticism is also, you know, com- a compelling thing in that regard. Yes, sir? The spheroder emanations of God, they each have a, later they come to each have qualities uh, that become like dispensed incarnate qualities of God. Wisdom versus understanding versus loving kindness versus judgment. They're usually opposed to one another and there's a middle way you're supposed to negotiate between them. That's, that's it. Yeah, you're shaking your head. maybe yeah I I hope so I have to go back to LA yeah yeah Um, I I don't mean to be this way and I'm very obviously a bad businessman and very unenterprising but I do have a little book called Kabbalah a guide for the perplexed that I published on Continuum Press which was then bought by Bloomsbury Press who needed somewhere to put their money because of a little thing they published called Harry Potter and uh, as a result, they got it translated into Japanese. A- everything I've been saying is pretty much in there with charts and pictures. Yes, what was it? I was curious if you could speak to the overlap of Kabbalah and Musar. I know that like in um, like Masato, and the path of the just, Masato, yeah. Supposedly this mystic, this very young mystic, Yes. Well, he had Messianic. He was like a young man who'd gotten... Where's Crane? No. Micah? No. He was a young man who'd gotten a little too ambitious, got into trouble, okay? So as an act of penance, he wrote a couple of works of, of, of Musser. He knew Kabbalah very well and was very preoccupied with it, and added to the canon different works or works of Kabbalistic Musser. And they usually come from a notion of um, uh, those qualities of God made mythic. OK, so, so um, some Musser is Kabbalistic and some Musser is anti-Kabbalistic. It's interesting. The decline of Kabbalah, perhaps you didn't have much Kabbalah um, when you all were growing up, Ellis Island generation, I'll wager. Um, why? What happened to the Kabbalah? Well, it was rejected as superstitious. It was also from the point of view of a Musser moralist regarded as a good quality to renounce. I'll give you the, the issue, all right? I'm into Kabbalah. Where are you into Kabbalah? I'm a Musser guy. I'm into Kabbalah because with Kabbalah, I understand why. I understand why something happened. I understand why this happened metaphysically. So the, the moralist, the Musser person, the ascetic says, I don't need to understand why. Understanding why is a kind of gratification. I don't need that gratification any more than I need, you know, other kinds of gratification. I renounce the desire to understand why. That became a pietistic Musser attitude, you know. So, so it's it, they exist in uneasy an relationship. Um, any more questions? Yes, sir.
2: Uh, you started out by talking about emanation. All things flow from the one. Yes. Uh, mentioned the term Sufiro. Talked a little bit about it. Uh, then you asked a question, a little bit about. Well, you know, what's the problem with that? And we sort of talked about evil briefly. And then we got into you know, the Shekhinah, became transitory. Sy- sy- symbols. And then we got into symbols, and how to hold the cup a little bit, and the numerology, and the, the Galat kosher, and the fetishizing of the halacha and things like that. Yeah. What I'm missing, and would love to hear, <coughs> is not the sort of the fringes of what fell out, uh, or or, or what the fringes of Kabbalah? But what is it that is? And, and you mentioned spiritual movement, but I didn't hear much about what is the power, the implications of all things flowing from the one. What has made Kabbalah so uh, uh, come
1: out and be so meaningful to people? Okay, so I'll I'll um. Uh, let's turn to page um, uh, turn to page thirty six. Um, the one one Kabbalistic element that has become it's it's a central thing. It's not fringe. Is the notion of the Sabbath as the celebration of God and the Shekhinah. There's no rational Jew so misanthropic that they don't get up with the rest of the congregation and greet the Sabbath bride, i.e. the Shechina, as part of a service that everybody does that was instituted by the Tzvat Kabbalists to be the wedding ceremony of God and the Shechina on Friday night. In every Jewish summer camp, or most of them, they have a first meal on Friday night and a second meal on Shabbos Day, and a third meal on Shabbos Day. Sometimes at the third meal, they sit and sing sad songs in certain uh, better some Jewish summer camps. The notion that the first meal is the meal of the wedding of God and the Shekhinah, the second meal is the meal of God on high, and the third meal is the meal of the intermediate level, Zeir Anpin, which is tinged with... Um, Uh, uh, sadness and poignancy and danger that exists at the center and in fact one text that you do have in your sidurim but is not usually on page 36 just as the aspects of god unite on high so too shabbat unites below in the mystery of oneness that he may be with him on high each ready to receive the other in holy oneness god is one God does not sit on the holy th- throne on high until she too, like him, is encompassed by the mystery of oneness that they may be <clears throat> united. Okay, so there is a, and, and, and follows a graphic description of the coupling of God and the Shekhinah in the <coughs> hymn that Isaac Luria wrote for this uh, section, which is also sung even in some liberal synagogues. Uh, it describes them grinding together in union, literally. So one very, um, you know, one very tenacious Kabbalistic understanding is the aura of eroticism on Friday night. If you've ever been in the summer camp on Friday night, when the Jewish summer camp, Who knows where it came from? Nobody was studying the Zohar with them, but on Friday night, the children, the adolescents, come down with a palpable soup of hormones that you can cut with a knife, okay? So there are, and and we remember this as our, the most fully realized, possibly, Friday night that we could have. Later, married couples will find that Friday night might be the first time that they've actually sat down to eat together, OK? In in, uh, a number of traditions, the Shabbos table is portrayed in a kind of four-sided way. I have a small collection of um, uh, 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 handwritten prayer books of of this type in which the Shabbos um, uh, table, along with 12 loaves of challah, on it is treated the sketches over and over resemble what Jung would call a mandala in which the Shabbos table becomes the center of the world that the activity at the Shabbos table with the children in attendance um, the cutting of the challah the the placing of one challah on top of another after you've made a cut in the initial one and you place that on the bottom All these kinds of images mixing eroticism and the idea of the intermingling of the sacred. Now, that's a very tenacious thing in most of Judaism. That Shabbos cult of God and the Shechina remains everywhere. So that that's pretty central. Um, The counting of the Omer, the counting of the Omer, if you just read it in the Torah, uh, you know it's sort of like Sesame Street if you've raised a child in the last 30 years the count all he loves to do is count He loves to count What do you do with the omer you count it, but in fact? Kabbalistically and in the Orthodox prayer books you're fixing the juxtaposition of seven spherot inside seven spherot and what every sfira symbolizes is going to be a kind of um, uh, uh microcosm of that day the auspiciousness of that day when the sexual sphera of one intersects with the other sexual sphera that's going to be a day of sexual anxiety when 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 judgment inter, inter interweaves with um, um, uh, uh, the sexual sphera din in gvurah and chod you're going to have the possibility of erotic strife okay when loving kindness uh intersee you know interacts with the sphere of sexuality, um, you know, you might get lucky. So there's, there's. Do, do you do know what I'm saying? So, so, so in we woven into the ritual. Every, every child will will, um, you know. I'm saying, if you're in a Hebrew school, you'll say it's Sukkot, and you're going to make a decoration for the sukkah, and you're going to have the seven shepherds: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, um, and. David and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, Joseph, and David. Okay, uh, where does that idea of the seven shepherds come from, and the seven shepherdesses? If you're uh, renewal or more avant, um, uh, it comes from the Zohar. It comes from the Zohar. We're not even sure exactly which of the seven shepherdesses. Huldah is in there, and I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, that uh, um, uh, 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 Various figures from the dishware of Judy Chicago are in there. You, you, you know, uh, uh, so, so, so there, the practices do suffuse. We don't have, there are things that we have only because of Kabbalah that we think, oh, that's so mainstream. That's such a mainstream Jewish uh, uh, thing. It, it comes from the Zohar, for better or for worse. Next week, Tubishvat Seder. When is Tu Day after Tomorrow night <laughs> when is tubishvat tuesday, tuesday night next tuesday night no, today is Ma- tomorrow, tomorrow, night.
0: tomorrow night.
1: Yeah. <sighs> that was a practice of the followers of shabtai Tzvi, to have a tubishvat seder okay so, oh, i'm going to have a seder it's really groovy we're going to eat fruit but but you know <laughs> the idea of having a tubishvat seder came from the Shabbatian movement uh, because they were greeting a new age in which even the fruit was going to be sacred okay so so these practices when you get to the halakhic level yeah I'm, you're looking quizzical you, yeah um, um, when you get to the halakhic level the practices really suffused suffused everything you know so it's it's are those some examples in answer to your question right. so, so yes so
2: you're we talking about that Last question yeah so in uh, the, the whole notion of The lamp has been shattered, the light has been distributed, or escaped, and as part of the Kunalum, we we are gathering the light and putting it back in the vessel. Is this also a Kabbalistic thing that's going on? Oh, of
1: course, of course. But it's more like when you broke an old-fashioned baby thermometer, and the mercury (laughs) fell out all over the, the floor. Do you know what I mean? And you try to just get the blobs of mercury together. Think that those blobs of mercury are like evil. And every blob is a place where the evil that was distributed in its own place has now made a small place where God has has no access. That's the problem. That's, that's the issue of uh, of the the breaking of the vessels and what it how it really works. You know, um, another thing I can't describe to my college students. Yes, Rav Shmuley. Thank you so much. It's wonderful.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to, please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much.